Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Turning the Goldfields Green. Today is a thematic bookend to episode 14 in which we looked at the start of life and how to do babies and nappies sustainably. Today we fast forward to the other end of life and are exploring what it means to pass back to the earth as gently as possible. I have spoken with Libby Maloney from Natural Grace Funerals in Woodend about what choices are available to us at the end of life. I also have an interview with Helen Bodicum, a Castlemaine artist who exhibited a work called Shroud in her PhD exhibition last year. But before we get to it, as ever, I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Jajawarung people, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. Natural grace really is a sacred and, and sustainable and an authentic response for for me to um, the deeply human need to be able to honour our dead in a way that's authentic for us in, as individuals. And so what I felt, um, my background is I'm an accountant. I had lived in, uh, you know, worked professionally as an accountant for most of my adult life until about 10 years ago. And I had been widowed as a young woman when I was 26 when my husband died and and left me with my our two-year-old child at the time. And that had been horrible and sad and awful and a bit of a shock. And um, we were cared for by a funeral company who did a perfectly acceptable professional job. Absolutely fine. But there was no choices or guidance or advice or support about how to have a funeral that really would have suited my Peter. At the time, it was fine because nobody was talking like that. Nobody was sort of saying, well, what does an individually crafted and carefully put together funeral ceremony look like for a man that had been a poet? You know, like, what what do you do with a two-year-old that's traumatised and and needs more? So it wasn't a thing. It just wasn't. And I went along with that because nobody told me that it could have been differently, I suppose, when I was young and traumatised and all that sort of stuff. So at the time, I I don't ever name that funeral director and I don't ever criticise that funeral director because they did a perfectly acceptable job. Um, It just could have been so much better, could have been so much more different, you know. So, jump forward sort of, I don't know, that was that's 20-something years ago now, so jump forward sort of 10 years from there and and having pretended I was fine for 10 years, I really realised that I wasn't fine and thought, there's more, this has to, there has to be more, this, this had to have served me and my child and and the memory of my beautiful Peter it had to have been better so I suppose partly drawing on my um, accounting skills my capacity to run a business and all those sort of things I really said right well nobody else is doing it I need I need to do this so I spent many 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 years researching and exploring um, the deep cultural practice 
around the end of life and funeral rituals and ceremonies. I talked to everybody I could get my hands on. I travelled the countryside. I did everything to really explore what could funeral care look like? How could it be more meaningful? How could it be kept in the home? How could it be sustainable? Mm. How could it be real for yeah. people and not have this sort of unusual disconnected experience right at the last time in your life where you should be having a disconnected experience? It's often a very, a traditional funeral is often very formal and mm. and sort of stiff. And I guess for some people that helps keep them together so they can actually get through oh, the day. 100%. Yeah. And we, and you know, we do formal lined up in rows, everybody in black suit funerals. We mm. do them because that's what's authentic and meaningful and real for some families. Yeah. There is no, there's no such thing as a right or wrong here. Yeah. It's yeah. about someone spending enough time with you to really listen, to understand which version of funerals is right for you and your family. Mm. So going to a church or being in a formal setting like that or lined up you know, in a chapel or somewhere like that is absolutely what some families need. Culturally, socially, traditionally what they've done in their family, that's the most meaningful for them. Then yeah. they're just as beautiful as the ones that are, you know, picnics in a paddock with mm. everybody having bought their own food on platters to share and, and the bonfire going and digging the grave at the cemetery or whatever. You know, like yeah. they're all beautiful. It's just about what makes it beautiful is that it's meaningful and, and authentic. Mm. And if those two things haven't happened, then it can just be sort of um, mechanical, I suppose, really. Yeah. We've ticked the box and it's not. So, yeah, essentially I, I had resisted being a funeral director for a long time because the idea of it, at, you know, at that time, 10 odd years ago, you know, funerals, very administrative, very much sitting in a, in a in an office ticking boxes and, and everything and having coming out of a redreaming my life and not wanting to be an accountant anymore, <laughs> the idea of doing that again didn't really interest me, to be honest. Yep. <laughs> um, eventually, I uh, just, you know, woke up in the middle of the night and went there. Uh, give in, you've got to do this, you've just got to yeah. do it your way, you know. So yeah, so um, so Natural Growth was born that night and we've gone from there, from, you know, looking after, I don't know, maybe five families in the, in the first couple of months. Yeah. Uh, we now look, over, look after over 200 families a year. And you're in two locations, aren't you? Yeah, so our sanctuary, which is our head office, if you like, is in Woodend. Which has been a uh, you know a bit unusual too because normally entering the funeral market or the funeral industry as a new player with no family connections or no background, no experience was a risky manoeuvre. And the other was doing that from a country town of 5,000 people. Pretty dumb really. But anyway, we did it and uh, we have families all over the state that come to us. Mm. And yeah, by anybody's measure, we're doing really well. We've also got a little care centre in Brunswick East in the city. Mm. And that came about mostly because we look after so many babies. Mm. And we just needed to create the central place in the mm. city where families, you know, who are accessing all the main maternity hospitals in town can get easy and comfortable access to us. Yeah, so we look after adults and everyone from there, but that's yeah. mostly our and our little baby team. We've got three exquisite women who run our baby team, mm. and they all work from there. So there's a couple of key stages in in caring for babies. Just quickly, the you know the opportunity for proper attachment that you, mm. you need to be able to attach to your baby before you can let it go. 
where we talk about saying hello before you say goodbye. You have to get to know them and hold them and connect them. Yeah, and then you need to have meaningful um, funeral care for them as well. So that could be for some families, a little graveside service. For some, it's a full funeral, you know, the whole everything. Yep. Um, but for most, it's um, they say goodbye at the end of what we call a vigil. So the time that they have with their baby. And we do some, you know, mother-to-mother time in there, so or mother-to-parent time, and we um, they'll change their baby or wrap them or snuggle them all into their little wicker basket coffins and actually parent them, get those opportunities for parenting and then managing how they have either the little ashes returned to them and what they do with setting up little altars in their house, little sacred spaces for their babies um, or their, or the graves if they've chosen burial. So we're finding that if, if all those steps happen well and thoroughly and the families have got plenty of time mm. and that the parents are held until such time as they surrender the next stage. They go, yes, we're ready for the next stage now. Then we're finding we're getting really good bereavement outcomes. That's great. So are your team trained in psychological guidance? Yeah, we've been actually asked a few times lately, complimentarily, uh, you guys are amazing at this, are you psychologists? No, we're not. None of us are trained psychologists. But we are, uh, we have regular professional development in all aspects of you know human behaviour and good care. Yeah. But you know, essentially, our mantra is we start the day with kindness. Mm. You know that if we start everything with kindness, if we have plenty of patience and um, genuine interest and concern for the family, then we're experienced enough in this. We've done it so much now mm. that we can say these are the options before you. If you go down this path, this is what you know. This is what it will look like. This is what it'll sound like, smell like, be like. Yeah. How does that feel versus this path, which where this will happen, which is you know that yeah. sort of thing. So mostly we're just kind <laughs> to people. I suppose coming coming to the industry with fresh eyes yeah. and not that um, this is the way we've always done it attitude. So we've had to start from scratch. Everything we've done on our own. None of us had prior funeral experience. Yeah. So we've really gone on the especially kindness, you know, how does this work? How do we kind to the earth? How do we kind to each other? How do we be kind to as much as we can, you know? And then just some common sense and a lot of trial and error. And it just constantly amazes us how uh, much the community actually does want this kind of care. You know, we thought we'd have to do a lot of very standard funerals till we broke into you know, offering this really individual care. Um, and it's been quite the opposite. Hmm. Yeah. It's the total opposite. People are hungry for it. Yeah, they are. Yeah. You mentioned care for the earth is one of your key thoughts as you go into it. Tell me about how you consider the environment in your business. Look, essentially, sustainable funeral care is what we don't do than what we do do. So if you look at the sort of primary hallmarks of the funeral industry and its impact on the environment, it comes down to different sort of key leading factors. One is um, embalming the dead, so the the sort of removal of all the bodily fluids and replacing them with with chemical, um, which is formaldehyde. Mm. And the impact not only on, on the earth and when that body's buried or on the atmosphere when it's cremated, that sort of thing, but mostly on the worker health of the people that are doing it. And so that's, that's a big aspect of it. Things like the coffins that people are, 
placed in and manufacturing life cycle of those coffins, where they've come from, what's the materials, where are they being made, what's the environment that they're being made in, how do they break down, you know, all that sort of thing. So that's another aspect. Uh, I mean, we could talk about this for hours. But yeah. <laughs> there's, there's things like where we, we bury the dead and, and or cremate them and how. So um, there's been a lot of discussion and there's better resources than me for you to go and find the impact of cremation on and the whole whole rise of the idea of natural burial grounds. Mm. It's, you know, where we hold ceremony, who comes, what do we buy and consume to have that, all those sort of things, how many cars are driving to the space. There's a lot to consider. So what we really do is say, well, what, what things can we do that aren't those things? So our company is totally chemical-free. We don't have ever embalm anybody and never have had to with the exception of one repatriation to New Zealand where you have to legally have the person embalmed and we took that person to a trusted colleague and they performed that service for us but other than that we don't have any care so all our mortuary care is um, warm water essential oil and love it's there's nothing else yeah. and it works and it's beautiful and our holistic mortician Jackie is a goddess, but we watch people's bodies change because, you know, the music that's being played in the room is right for them. The way Jackie talks to them or sings to them is right for them. Or we're helping the family be the people that wash the body mm. and get them dressed and ready. And it's extraordinary how the body, even though it's just a body and the spirit's gone, if you like, can still respond to that kind of care. So that's a big part of it. Um, all our coffins, the only coffins will sort of stock here are you know, made from sustainably harvested or timbers or sewn or grown or all out of natural materials. Yep. We pioneered the practice of what's called shrouded cremation. Mm-hmm. So shrouded, uh, the body's shrouded, so it's just wrapped in, in cotton and it's laid on a simple piece of timber that we call a shroud bearer and, and that's all that's cremated. So the body's in its natural state. If it's dressed, it's only dressed in natural material. It's wrapped in natural material. It's placed on a single piece of timber and then cremated without a coffin or anything. So you're looking at the lowest possible impact environmentally of what is being pumped into the atmosphere, if you like, um, by doing that. There's also huge savings in terms of cost, um, but also materials by not using coffins. Can I ask a few tricky questions around that? Yeah, sure. Because I'm assuming you don't have your own crematorium, you'd have to go elsewhere. Are are there ways to have that done with green power or does it, is it always gas or is it, because I know they have to reach certain temperatures. Yeah, in Victoria, all cemeteries and crematoriums are owned by public trust. The funeral directors can't own their own crematorium. Yeah. So you have to go to somewhere. Yeah. So generally we go to Bendigo, to Remembrance Park Central Victoria at Bendigo. Um, yeah. But we also do a lot, you know, well, all over Melbourne, Ballarat. Yeah. And I, I think probably in terms of well, at least documenting what they're doing, Geelong Cemetery Trust does a lot of work on that. But yeah, I'm yeah. pretty sure they're all gas. In terms of the shrouds that you are offering people, they're cotton. Are they organic cotton or is it? Do people have a choice of the fabric that they, they get to use? Yep. Yep. 
So, you know, often they'll choose their own, you know, duna cover or sleeping bag or they've chosen a beautiful piece of silk from their travels around the world or mm. generally, though, just a, um, a, a wash cut, yeah, just a calico, you know. It just depends what people want. But people can actually make a, a really personal choice about about the fabric. They 100% yeah. can, yeah. So mm. it's often a reused fabric. For natural burial, which is a bit different again, person has to be placed in a burial, a specific burial shroud that's got the weight-bearing mechanism within it and has the straps for lowering the body into the ground. So it is a shroud that we actually provide. So the person who can be wrapped in whatever the family would like within it, but they have to use that for burial because it's the only weight-bearing one that we can actually get insured. They're gorgeous and that's from an unbleached calico and hemp straps. Yeah, so it's good. So shrouded cremation is sort of, you know, that's our, our big contribution to to shift what's available. So how did that come about? I was actually being interviewed, like, not this more to this, um, and the, the interviewer asked me that, you know, that their mum was claustrophobic and they the idea of being in a coffin just horrified person's mother and um, what couldn't she just wrap her up in a beautiful piece of cloth and take her to the crematorium and it was very early in my funeral directing life and I gave her the response which I hate hearing from anybody else which is <laughs> that's just the way it is you know that's yeah. that's the, the way and I can't remember exactly if I said oh that's the law or whether that's just the way it is them's the rules them's the rules <laughs> and then that got under my skin and I just thought nah that can't there's surely there's something we can do about this so I scoured the legislation and came up for air out of that and went nah this does not say you have to use a coffin it just doesn't so I went to the then CEO of Remembrance Park Central Victoria and said to him I want to do this why can't I and he said same thing, we've never done it, can't do it, not the way. And I went, mm. And he came back to me a couple of days later and went, oh, bloody hell, woman, you drive me crazy, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but you're right, you know, you're right, you can. So we began the practice of um, shrouded cremation, pioneered with, in partnership with RPCV. And um, since then, we've been able to get um, everyone else has picked it up Geelong, Ballarat, Gippsland. And in Melbourne, there's two major cemetery trusts. One's called the Greater Metropolitan Cemetery Trust, and um, with a great deal of lobbying. Oh my God, it took me ages, but I got them <laughs> over the line. And there's another one called the Southern Metropolitan Cemetery Trust, and and they won't have a bar of it, and that's mm. okay. So, but it means that every single community in Victoria can now access shout information. And it is all about choice, isn't it? Yeah. And we get a lot of inquiry from interstate now going, how did you get that up? How does it work? What do you do? What, blah, blah, blah. So we help mm. help them out as much as we can. Yeah, so it was a, it was a great, great process. And, and now the vast majority of our cremations here are shrouded cremation. So that's our little contribution to the world. But we're constantly exploring and, and you know, trying to, you know, how can, how can people make their own shroud? And we link up with lots of beautiful artists and other people that are doing things and, and families can make their own shrouds and make them, you know, at the end of their lives and contribute to how they're made and decorated and mm. everything. So then afterwards, when the person does die, the family go, oh, remember we did this and that's how she, exactly how she wanted it, you know, mm. all that sort of stuff. So that's all very beautiful. 
Um, and then you come down to, just going back to your primary question about caring for the earth as much as we can, just sensible things like our main utilisation of resources is in fuel and power. So we just work as actively as we can to offset those. So mm. we make um, a regular supportive contribution to our local land care. Our land care group is focused on the protection of the endangered black thumb, which is in our community here in Woodend. Yeah, so they, they use the funds that we contribute every year to, to help them in their progress. That's not always just buying more trees. We encourage the families to choose wisely, to choose meaningfully, and then they don't go looking for stuff to buy. If I had gone back and looked at Peter's time, I would have had a burial at the Natural Burial Ground at Culture, where they would have let us have a big bonfire, we would have had all storytelling around the fire. All our family and friends would have bought food to share, and then we would have just laid him in the earth when we were ready. And, yeah. and then buried, and then um, filled the grave ourselves. You know, that just would you just look at what you're not buying. So, a lot of it is about is about that. It's about really spending enough time to say what really meets your need, not buying stuff to prove that you love someone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, mm. definitely. Mm. There's probably a much more articulate answers than that, but <laughs> essentially, you know, we just don't we just don't do stuff. We're still running a business, though. I mean, we still have to print things every now and then, and we still have to... But there's lots of ways you can get around to simple, normal, good practices around reducing waste or yeah. zero waste. Like in our sustainability policy, which is freely available on our website, you know, the well-being of my staff and, and human, social and emotional sustainability is our paramount. Yeah. Now, that happens to mean that because we all walk gently... Um, that the impact on the environment, you know, is, is as low as it could possibly be. I don't think there's anyone doing any better than what we're doing. And that's actually what makes us be well. Mm. So people go, oh, you know, what are you talking to? You know, I'm not, I'm not a known, diehard, sustainability, outspoken, you know, on the streets person. Because to me, it's not about that. It's about me being authentic. My mum didn't even know that she was an environmentalist. <laughs> she just didn't. But she was, yeah. <laughs> you know. And I think we've just got to look after each other, move as gently as we can in through this. And that by creating meaning, staying true to ourselves, then we won't go looking for other things to do. And that those are the things that have more impact. Yeah, the mindless, like, I just need to do something so I'll do anything kind of yeah. moments. Yeah. Which yeah. is often like when people are grieving or they're in shock, they are often just looking for a bit of a pain relief, really. <laughs> yeah, 100%. 100%. So, you know, if you've got no connection to the dead, if, you, if you've got no control over the process, if you feel like you're just having to go through the motion of organising a funeral, then you're likely to go and buy 200 plastic baubles that people, you know, wave in the air or something or heaps of flowers or some crappy, shiny, ridiculous coffin that you just don't need if you're choosing more from deep down where you live rather than scrambling for meaning. So um, it really is a matter of what we don't do rather than what we do do. Yeah. And we're actively involved with sustainability festivals and supporting community education around sustainable choices. So what sort of things do you do at festivals? Oh, we just hang out, really. 
we take it, we take a shroud and a couple of coffins and you know freak the first lot of people out and then they all settle and everybody yeah. copes and then we're frantic. We just have a constant yeah. stream of people coming up desperate to yeah. talk. I mean, there's sort of the natural, you, well, there's, they're our people, you know, the, our fellow sustainability going folk. But there's a natural uh, connection with a lot of them, but they're so used to us now that they just go, oh, natural growth is here, good old I live, you know, blah, blah, blah. But the passers by, they often will come in and burst into tears, just, oh, thank you, mm. thank you, you know. And we don't even need to say that. They can see from the things we've got on display calico shroud. No coffin, our little essential oils and our gold frankincense and myrrh. Because a lot of people just don't know there's there's a choice in it. They don't know. That's the key, is raising awareness and, and encouraging people to trust themselves. I mean, the, the truth of funeral care or funeral responsibilities in Victoria, and this is essentially the same across Australia, mm-hmm. is that there's three requirements. One is that a, that a doctor certifies you know, who's died and how they died yeah. and that it's all okay, that was an expected death. The second thing is that the body is cremated or buried or disposed of, is the word, um, in a legal manner. Now, in Victoria at the moment, that really is only burial or cremation. There's a couple of other things. And the third thing is you have to register the death with birth, death and marriage. Yeah. Now, there is no requirement in there that you have to use a funeral director. There is no law that says you have to use a funeral director. Yeah. There's no reason you can't do all of that yourself, that you can't do it from home. You can transport a body yourself. You can access the cemetery yourself. There's total independence for families to lead their own funeral care. So if you say, well, they're the things I legally have to do as a senior next to kin of a person, that leaves a whole lot of scope, my friend, for, for what else you can do. So a funeral for you might be just like, you know, I imagined I would have had for my Peter now is, you know, just all friends around a bonfire or a barbie in the backyard with the coffin there and then off to the cemetery. Mm. It's endless. The, the number of things we do in a week, let alone bigger, <laughs> um, is different. Yeah. So, you know, but you've got to understand, well, what's the law say? What do you have to do first? And they're the only things you have to do. The rest is all urban myth. Or just tradition or habit. Yeah, habit. Yeah, that's right. What is some greenwashing that happens in, in the funeral industry? Because I've heard that cardboard, for example, coffins aren't as sustainable as they sound. I think we need to turn it all into a positive and say anything that comes up that gets people to have a conversation is positive. So take for a moment those pods that you were talking about, you know, and you look at the shape of those pods as they're presented at the moment. Like an egg shape. Like a beautiful egg shape, yep. So they started out as an artist impression of what that might look like and how we could make memorial forests out of the dead. So that's that's a natural burial ground, simply what that is. Now, you can call it whatever you like or change it whatever you like, but if you lay a body naturally in the earth without it having been embalmed at a shallow depth, without ornate headstones and things like that, all the things that make up the principles of natural burial, then that is a natural burial. And trees grow from that. Trees, people are planted under trees all the time or new growth is made or whatever. It's not this sort of miraculous cure or answer to things. It's not a brand new thing that, yeah, is... Yeah, it's just not. And and none of it is. All of what we practice as holistic practitioners and as sustainable practitioners, all of us, um, it's ancient. 
It's yeah. ancient, and we talk about we're we're remembering. We're he- helping people to remember, and it's a re-pioneering of these things. It's not, you know, here's me claiming I've I've created and shrouded cremation in in Australia, and look, I have. I've been the person that's made that be commercially legally available to the Victorian, and one day it will be the Australian market. But it talked to me about, you know, the Varanasi, <laughs> mm. cremating people on pyres forever. In India, do you mean? Yeah. So none of it's new. It's it's all ancient and it's all proven and it's all right. It's yeah. just how do you bring it into a modern context? How do you make it available to everybody, equally accessible and affordable and safe and meet yeah. the health and standards and all those sort of things? Because... A lot of the things are a bit out there. So just close your eyes for a minute and think, how would you get a dead body into that pod? <laughs> how much manhandling do you have to do? Well, yeah. and can it even do it? You know, rigor mortis is a thing, my friend. And how the legs got to bend into that? And how big? I'm only five two or something. I'm pretty little, but I'm I'm not a I'm not a tiny little thing. If you if if I was to squeeze my legs up to my chin and mm. made myself into a ball. That would be a damn big pod that I would need to fit in. And then how deep would the hole need to be to bury it at a depth that meets the mm. the legislation? So the legislation requires 75 centimetres above the height of the coffin or the remains. Well, I think it looks beautiful. I think it's gorgeous. But realistically, is it something that I'll see come onto the consumer market? No, I don't. And is it any better than being buried in a shroud and having a tree planted above you? No. It's exactly the same, effectively. It's exactly the same. But if you aesthetically like that idea and you're going to pay for it, God knows what they would cost if they were actually (laughs) available. But what they have done is create an enormous amount of global conversation, which is brilliant. Because a lot of people say, oh, just, you know, park me under a tree, put me in the earth and plant a tree on top of me that'll make me happy. And so it's created conversation. And if if a family's gone off and gone, oh, mum, look at this, it's beautiful. What would you want if you died, mum? And it's caused a conversation, then that is brilliant. The same with the mushroom suit. Oh, yeah, so the mycelium shroud. So that was actually came from the work of Dr. Pierre Italandi, who's an Australian diner, and uh, she's the originator of those ideas and then it's been picked up by different people across the world which is great but it did start with her so those suits but it's the same thing great make a suit but does that mean if you want to dress your person in normal clothes or in their favorite outfit or whatever that you can't because you're using the suit and how does the suit get on the dead and what's wrong with just wrapping them up in cotton and then sprinkling a good composty kind of mixture of mushroom spores and things over them in a natural burial grave where you know like so I sound a little bit cynical and I really don't mean to be um, but I do think the greatest purpose of these items is conversation causing not the actual item themselves because you just don't need them. And you mentioned earlier that a lot of what you're doing and and a lot of what these natural alternatives are are just us remembering what humanity has done for millennia to handle our deceased. That's a much better way of putting it. <laughs> but I, I actually think that's a, a nice analogy for what the sustainability movement in general is trying to do. We're trying to remember, how do you live without plastic? How do you 
you know, make your own bread and, and grow your own veggies locally so you're not importing them from Chile or wherever else in the world? How do we how do we live the way we did? It was only a century ago that we lived that way. Yeah, that's right. Exactly right. And, you know, when you died a century ago, and sometimes I'll come up against challenges from the trustees of country cemeteries where I want to do mm. natural burial. And, and the first thing I'll do is sit with those people with absolute respect and honour and say thank them for their service in you know managing cemeteries. And I'll invite them to tell me how and where their grandmother died. And they, because these folks are all in their 70s and 80s, so their grandmother died a long time ago. And they'll talk about how she died at home and how the lady down the street knew how to lay her body out and that she stayed in the house for a few days and the priest came and blessed her and everybody was comfortable with her dead body and everybody knew how to manage it and the family got fed and the instruments got bought in and the, the wake began and, and the men made a coffin and someone bought the, the cart or the you know truck or something up and they drove the person to the church themselves and they dug the graves themselves and they laid the coffin in the grave and they filled it themselves and the world wasn't crazy about death because they knew what to do. They knew the map. They knew mm. the pathways. And the person that was dying knew that they were safe. They'd be cared for that way because they'd seen it done. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And that leads me to a question that I've been rolling around in my mind for a while, which is I feel like with these amazing advances in medicine and our ability to care for sick people we're not exposed to death as much as people used to be back in that era that you're describing now and even infant mortality and the mortality of mothers as they give birth is so far lower than it used to be I feel like there's a connection between this fear we have for the planet as we watch ecosystems dying there's a balance there somehow Um, I don't know do you have anything any reflection on that? I just think we're all spoiled, you know. I think we've been so spoiled and so safe and so, I mean, in first world Mm. situations, of course, so privileged that we're in such a place that, you know, even if you look at our political landscape, the things that we're choosing to vote, you know, that swing our vote from one to another is something that such a small percentage of the population is privileged enough to be able to talk Mm. about. Even things that matter as much as marriage equality and things. But if you're starving in the desert, then these sort of things don't matter and so much of the world is still impacted by by lack of food, by lack of health care. Mm. You know, there's just there's not enough for everybody. And so I think we have become spoiled. I think we've forgotten to recognise how fortunate we are and that you have to protect them what we've got so my answer is yes I agree with you totally but yeah I guess what you're saying is that we're so used to being safe that we've forgotten that everything around us could fall apart and then we really won't be safe yeah we really won't be that's right Mm. and you know that's that's the gift of this COVID thing is it is, is a great big kick up the bum to have a good hard think everybody what do you really need if you haven't you know if you haven't been able to access junk food for what are we up to week four or something and you're fine you're actually fine yep fine <laughs> that's right. you know if you know, the hardest part is the social connection but if you think about what people have gone without why do we need to drive to melbourne to go to work all the time we can work perfectly well from home at least most of the time 
you know, why is telehealth only now a Medicare-funded benefit? That's where you see your doctor on the online. So you still have your appointment, but for for so many of the medical appointments, you don't need to be in their office. Yeah. And for a lot of people, it's very stressful to get down to the doctor's office oh. and then sit there for an hour waiting for your appointment. And... Yep, yep. And this all, yep. yeah, those sort of things. So this is going to be interesting, I think, just as a really big reminder about what really matters. What are we prepared to do to protect it? You know, look at the women that are having their babies and some places their husbands or partners aren't even allowed to be with them. And others, they're allowed to be there for the birth and they have to leave the hospital the minute the baby's born. And poof, big stuff, really big stuff. So, yeah, it's going to be an interesting reminder, isn't it? Shake up. That we are mortal. That we are mortal, yeah. Mm. And that these resources are finite and we need to we need to act now to protect them. All this big delicious pot, isn't it? And we all contribute a bit to the, to the big mix. And what we're doing here is just saying, well, in the end, when it, when it comes time to, to say goodbye, it can be as considered and gentle and careful as, as people, you know, for many, many people, especially in our communities, you know, rural communities and all sorts of you know, sustainably focused communities, um, that that's consistent with how they've lived. And and we know for sure in terms of social and emotional sustainability, that's really good for the people that survive them. It's a really nice thing to be able to share with people yeah, they have those choices and and that there's a lot to think about and feel through and you don't have to rush it and you can start thinking about it now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that, that, that's the big take-home item is um, planning. And this COVID thing has shown that up a lot, the difference for families who, who had had a conversation, um, who, well, God forbid, a whole plan, um, they were they're much better suited to manage the restrictions that are now around them um, with COVID than, than families who have never had a conversation. So they're dealing not only with ideas they've never thought about before, um, tackling the fact that their person has died and they're exhausted and fragile and sad, um, and there's all these big restrictions. So, you know, planning and thinking ahead is just so imperative. It's an act of love. I love you enough to let you know that these are, this is what I'd like. Yeah, and to have a conversation that may be painful and that you don't want to think about. Yeah, but it's only, it's only for the good. And you don't have to bang on about it every day, you know, just because I bang on about it every day doesn't mean <laughs> everybody else does. But I, we often will say to people, here, come, you know, we've got all these documents that we send out that people can consider and information and links and suggestions and, and they explore all that and then they've got a planning document that they complete and then they, they're like, put it in your drawer. You're done. You know, that's enough for people to, something happens to pick, people that love you will pick that document up and that'll provide them um, with the treasure map of, of, right, this is what you wanted. We don't really encourage prepaid funerals here. Um, I don't think it's a good consumer choice for people because it limits choice when the time comes. But also it denies people that, that you love the opportunity to to create funeral for you. And so if you dictate too much, you, you're actually, people need funerals. The, the role of funerals, and there's a whole other conversation as well, but they're really, really important. They're important for how we process grief. And if we if we 
deny people the opportunity to create curate those funerals, then they're not getting their, their early bereavement experiences that they really need. So um, we don't like prepaid much. That's not to say you shouldn't be, if you want to be financially responsible and put money aside and all that sort of stuff, that's fine. Yeah. Um, but to, and have it written into your will that a certain amount goes to funeral expenses and all of that stuff. Yeah, that's right. But to have a list that says you have to have this coffin and you have to go to that church, you have to have that song, you have to have everything, um, which a prepaid does require people to do, then it's denying a lot of opportunity for engagement. I mean, the whole conversation about natural burial and the role of cemeteries and um, home-based death care and caring for the dead and what actually happens to our bodies and all that stuff, that's fascinating. You know, it's just so cool about it. You can just gently slide back to nature and you don't have to stamp on it as you go out. That was Libby Maloney from Natural Grace Funerals. Next up is Helen Bodicombe, an artist who made her own gorgeous, fully biodegradable shroud. I've been working predominantly with glass and stone for a long time, but I've also been interested in working with ephemera or materials which change over time. And I guess because my main practice has been anchored in the traditions of mosaic for a long time, and because conventionally mosaic is about making an artefact that's permanent somehow because it's made out of glass or stone or mortar. I was interested in, I guess, for this particular work shroud to think in more temporal terms, so thinking more about time and change. And, um, yeah, and it was part of my final PhD exhibition at Lot 19 last August. So the intention for this is very literally to be a shroud for you at the end of your life is that right well yeah i mean i'm i'm the final ingredient i guess you know because the i guess the idea is to create a shroud with a decorative form on it which i guess has been made using mosaic methods however not conventional mosaic materials because all the materials bar the gold leaf tesserae are designed in fact to biodegrade once my body is wrapped within the shroud and I guess because I've had a long-standing relationship with Vaughan, which is where I'm speaking from now, and my partner and I decided quite some years ago that we would like to be buried there. I guess coming from a culture of, you know, our families tend to lean towards cremation, and for a long time that's been the preferred method of body disposal. For us, it's about actually becoming part of the physical fabric of the place of Vaughan beyond our own lifetime. Mm. So I just came upon this idea. I guess it was influenced in some ways too by the fact that my father was dying at the time. And in fact, by the time I made this work, he, he had himself died. Dad was dying for quite a long time. He was elderly. He had a form of cancer. But also I think I've come from a family culture where we've talked about death a lot. My father worked in a death-related industry, you might say. And he certainly spent a lot of his time and energy professionally at end-of-life situations with people. So I've always been comfortable with acknowledgement of death being part of life, and I suppose Mm. that's what this shroud work is very much a part of. It's more thinking of death not as an end point, but actually as a transitional phase. So 
all of the materials except for the gold, as you mentioned earlier, are biodegradable. Yes. So that deliberately there will be nothing left except for some tiny fragments. And the gold itself was symbolic for you, especially in this region, wasn't it? Yeah, well, you know, this is the gold field. So there's a kind of symbolic repatriation of that material back to the gold fields. All the other materials were made using latex as a binder, which will deteriorate quite quickly when immersed with moisture and bacteria and all the other things that are going to get going once, you know, you become a bit more soupy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, I, I used human hair and I used wood ash from the wood stove. And so I made my own tesserae and actually made the artwork on the shroud, the motif, which was actually a a spider orchid, a particular orchid, which is endemic only to this area, in fact, Chewton, Campbell's Creek, Vaughan. I guess it's talking about rarity and the specifics of location and the relationship that we have with a place and the enduring nature of the relationship, albeit through uh, an impermanent material. And I think there's a nice symbolic element to that as well because orchids pretty much disappear for most of the year and then for a small time they flower and they're sort of visible a lot of these orchids are quite tiny in the scale of like the earth and the landscape aren't they exactly kind of like our own lives we pop up and disappear (laughs) exactly i think that that sort of fleeting fragile transience is what i was wanting to highlight and i think we do get very caught up with our own hubris and We've only got to look at the situation unfolding around us at the moment. With the COVID-19. To see plenty of evidence for that. Yeah, the COVID-19, see the, the full spectrum of fragility, hubris, mm. you know, denial, the, the fairly uh, rapid and, and, you know, the reality of it, mm. really, which is pretty sobering when you see it en masse. Yeah, because I think we have come to a point in human evolution where we've become quite, we feel quite safe. We feel like the medical system will be able to save us if something happens and I mean there's always exceptions to that there are certain illnesses that scare us all but there's a certain sort of level of like we expect to live to 80 or 90 these days well it's it's almost like it's our yeah. right isn't it and I think that's where you know when when something comes to threaten that there is you know it's, it's unjust yeah. isn't it? when actually for the majority of human history people were lucky to live to 40 <laughs> Yeah, depending. It's interesting depending on who you were. I mean, for a long time, I thought that the you know some of the, the you know the Greek philosophers who we look back to, you know Aristotle and a lot of the a lot of the the you know the heroes, the the, the thinking heroes of that of that era, you know would you know how how long did they live? Well, a lot of them actually lived into their eighties and even into their nineties. Mm. Because they were wealthy, they ate well. Yeah. You know, if they didn't die of the lead poisoning and so on, it, you know, it's still very much been connected with wealth and power and privilege. Absolutely. Actually, those who've yeah. who've lived long and those who've who've lived short. Yeah. Lives. And you mm. know, the privilege of not having to give birth, which is you know very life threatening through most of human history. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, for me, that this, the you know, the shroud idea was was very much one that was about the notion of sort of continuity of life. And I, I can remember after um, Dad died. In fact, I was part of that uh, photographic survey that profiled a lot of artists and were displayed during the last Castlemaine State Festival. And the photographer kept trying to make a date to do the shoot with me and it was during the the period when dad was actively dying and eventually 
he died and she said well can we you know can we do this shoot and I said well yeah I can but I said there's there's just one place where I want to be at the moment and that's actually in the water at Vaughan and that you know being part of the river I know for a lot of people who live in this region being in the res on your back in the water with the dragonflies yeah, staring up at the yeah, blue sky yeah like physically being a part of it is deeply soothing and there is a sort of existential comfort that comes of that feeling i think it's fairly you know very sort of clearing and curing and and soothing and the sh- the shroud idea for me is somehow connected with that it's about physically becoming part of what i'm already a part of you know because i eat the vegetables that grow in the soil here it's it's an affirmation of that continuity and a continuation of life as I said through a sort of transition it's just a change that happens it's not an end of one thing and the beginning of another it's it's just a transition to something else I guess isn't it yeah absolutely and to allow yourself to decompose in the earth is so fundamentally different to having your ashes and having them scattered like what you're giving back to the earth in terms of the micro flora mm. and fauna you know it's it's vastly yeah. different so I mean it's it's interesting when you start looking into the logistics of this sort of thing too because once I hit on the idea of looking for a shroud I, I did a lot of trawling online and then of course all my google search engine stuff meant I kept getting links to you know pop-ups from crematoria and and and, and embalming equipment <laughs> embalming equipment kept popping up everywhere amazing that's such a people wanting to live forever or be preserved forever which is the complete opposite of what you're looking for but once you start googling one thing it all comes up the whole landscape comes up which is pretty interesting but in the end i I bought a shroud which is custom made for green burial it's made of 100 percent bamboo and it was actually imported into australia Mm. by a company in queensland called final touch but i did find it's not easy to buy them already made and unless you you know, design things properly, there are logistical requirements, you know, like you need to be able to slide a board in underneath and you need to be able to tie a body into it securely and, and it needs to fit. Yeah. It needs to be the right size yeah. for you. I mean, that they are one size fits all, but certainly if you're going to, as I did, make a motif and fit that to the shroud, I actually had to try the shroud on first. So that was the first step for me, was calling a friend and saying, would you mind coming to my studio? Sure, what for? Um, I want you to wrap me up in my burial shroud. <laughs> it's a dress rehearsal. <laughs> That's a good friend. Yes, yeah, she's a very good friend. So what was the process like of, because it would have been hours and hours of painstaking stitching and thinking and planning and designing this pattern that goes onto the shroud. What was that process like for you? Yeah, I look, I, you know, I consulted with various people. I talked with Francis Cincotta actually about the, the motif itself. And then I wanted to be able to make tesserae using material that had been part of my life. And so I actually collected a heap of wood ash from my stove and sifted it and experimented with making tesserade or I kind of made thick mats made from PVA glue and wood ash and when they had dried and I flipped them over a few times I cut them up into lots of little squares and so a lot of the mosaic was actually made out of those. I collected hair Mm -hmm. from my partner and my children and my dog 
and my own hair, mm -hmm. and I included those in some of those tesserae as well. And so materially, it consists of us and, and our, our lives, our collective lives, and that of me and my families. And so, and so it was a very mm. considered process. And it is a kind of weird thing, actually, making something like that, understanding as you do it what its final intention is you know it's a bit it's a bit sobering but it's kind of a bit ironic and tongue-in-cheek and you've got to ride with the humorous aspect of it too you mentioned that you mix it all with pva glue is that biodegradable or degradable pva it's water soluble so latex is the latex is the um, primary biodegradable um, binder that i've mm -hmm. used in in uh, that um, mosaic on the shroud and PVA has helped to stabilise and bond. So I've actually used PVA and latex together. I'm very fortunate that at Lot 19, I've got Ewan Wood as one of my neighbours and, of course, as a <laughs> museum preparator and master of binders and biodegradability and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, I had his, his expertise to draw on a bit, which was yeah. terrific. It's one of the lovely things about being at Lot 19. Yeah. Again, community. Yeah, that's right. And you've, how long have you been at Lot 19? <gasps> long time. <laughs> yeah, 13 years. And, um, yeah, 13 years and, and, and I hope to be there till I leave in a shroud. That was artist Helen Bodicum. As ever, with anything on this program, please look at the episode description at saltgrass.podbean.com to find links and information about the topics and the people interviewed. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. This program was produced in partnership with the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group, MASC, and Main FM. Salt. 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 Yeah. Salt. Salt of the earth people, grassroots change, salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com.